Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, and today is a special episode as I chat with a performer whose novelty Christmas song has become a Baltimore tradition for over 40 years. How good it is! Hi, I'm Claude Call. So a few years back, for my first holiday-themed episode, I chose a couple of songs that had a connection to my hometown of Kings Park, New York. When considering this year's episode, I started wondering if there were songs connected to my adopted hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. I knew of one for sure, but were there any others? Well, it turns out there were, but we're going to concentrate on the first one for now. David Bois has been acting on stage, on television, in video games, on commercials, and any number of other things, including corporate events and audiobooks since the late 1970s. In 1981, he wrote and recorded a song called Crabs for Christmas, which became an instant regional hit. And if you know anything about Maryland, you know that this is the place to come for the blue crabs. Now, let me give you this tip I've learned, which a lot of the locals haven't learned. Even though crabs are considered a summer food, crab season runs from May into November. So if you're in Maryland and you're getting crabs from outside that time window, then you're definitely getting crabs that came from somewhere else. See, the crabs, they burrow into the mud and they hibernate over the winter. So there are literally none to be harvested around here during that time. But the other secret, and the thing that actually is a little bit of a secret, is that crabs are actually at their best near the end of the season because they're eating lots of food and they're storing up lots of energy for the hibernation period. So a November crab is a delicious crab. And now that I'm way off topic, let me move back on topic. In addition to Crabs for Christmas, Dave has a bunch of other fun tunes written about life in Maryland, and we talk a little bit about those as well. I met with Dave in the lobby of the building where his office is located, and that's where we spoke, in a quiet hallway nearby. Not far from us was a pair of doors that led to the outside world, so from time to time you might be able to hear bits of the storm going on in the parking lot. Anyway, here's me with David Dubois. I think I think what, what's interesting to me is that I learned in doing the research for this interview, you're part of the Star Trek universe. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, you really did do your research, didn't you? I am. Uh... Very early on in the gaming industry, uh, because Bethesda Softworks is here in the Delmarva area, uh, I got called in to do uh, a number of uh, video games, and one of the Star Trek uh, games was... I didn't do any major characters. I did, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Commander Redshirt. You know, I probably died after three minutes of being (laughs) in the game. But uh, but it's a very interesting kind of way to use your voice professionally because you are handed a binder with all of the lines that your character says you have no idea what the other characters are saying and you just go down the list and you read them and in a game like star trek where i'm playing probably three or four different characters then you give each one a little different spin a little different timbre a little different pitch mm-hmm. so that they have some difference to there you can't do a texas accent in a star star trek uh, game because i you know they don't use any kind of regional accents <laughs> at all 
That, that just, I, I, I know that, that you do a lot of voiceovers and mm-hmm. commercials and, 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 yeah. and that sort of thing. Is, is there a difference as far as how you project yourself as a video game character versus other voice work? Well, most of the other voice work that I do um, is either narrations for documentaries or training videos, that kind of thing. I do a lot of book narration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the book narrations, if it's, if it's just a straight nonfiction book telling you about uh, computers or history or something like that, then, then that's a pretty standard read. For the video games or for books that are fiction, where I have to do a number of different characters, you are using more performance without volume. Because, you know, if you're listening, my mouth is about an inch away from the microphone here. And so you have to be judicious with how much you're projecting. You have to try to get the character, uh, which sometimes, especially with video games... Um, your character is sometimes in dramatic crisis. So, you know, in danger, sometimes yelling, and you sort of have to play the microphone and understand how the distance works to get the essence of the character without blowing out the audio. Coming back to, to the audio books then and, and doing fiction, mm-hmm. um, you, 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 you're saying that you do kind of do characters in a, in, a, in, a, in a way. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but does that mean that you do something like, you know, go into falsettos for women's voices? Or? <laughs> no, I don't use this voice very often. Uh, but what I will do is, is you, well, for, for children, I will alter the pitch. And for women, I'll alter the pitch. What I usually try to do is for the main character, the star of the book, I usually try to use a voice that's as close to my own so that it's like mindless. It's just me talking. Then for the characters around the main character, I keep track. I, keep, I write down all the characters' names, figuring out what kind of voice I'm going to do. If it's an older person, you can sort of do that kind of... You know, but for women, I just make it just a little softer. Now, that doesn't always work for all the women, but, but especially the one I'm married to. But anyway, um, so for, and, 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 and then if you're going to do a woman who's old, then you can sort of do the old thing with it a little higher pitch, a little softer. Um, and I will sometimes use accents just to differentiate if, they're, if they are from different regions of the country, I can play with that. But I have to keep very careful track of each character, and sometimes they'll surprise you. Because um, if, you don't, if you don't read the book ahead of times, you can be surprised. Well, I got pretty cocky one time, and I just started, because I'm a very good cold reader, mm-hmm. which, which means that I can just pick up a script and start reading it. Um, and actually, I have a friend of mine who came up to me one day. She said, I know why you're a good cold reader. I said, why? She said, you went to parochial school. I said, what? She said, yeah, you were taught by nuns, right? I said, yeah, for the first six years of my life. And she said, and they made you stand up in reading class and read out loud, right? I said, yeah, and they usually held a yardstick in their hand while I was doing it. And she said, that's why. You're used to reading out loud. You're used to having your eyes go ahead of where the words are. So that makes you a good cold read. And she's absolutely correct. But one time I got a little too cocky, didn't read the book ahead of time. It was a sort of a detective novel, and about 23 pages in, this one uh, uh, character, Detective Romero, um, they didn't say until 
page 23, and his Latino accent got even heavier. Oh. Which means I had to go back to page one, and everywhere Romero was, I sort of had to do a little, you know. So uh, I try not to do, you have to be care- careful about uh, typecasting or stereotyping, you know, accents, characters, that kind of thing. So I, I try not to go too heavy in any of the accents or, or even in any of the characterizations. And yet, when you recorded Crabs for Christmas, you really leaned into the Baltimore accent. Well, that was sort of the whole point. Yeah. You didn't hear the Baltimore accent too much, uh, as being used professionally. Um, as a matter of fact, nowadays, uh, in John Waters' movies, he, he won't even have anybody use a Baltimore accent. Because he's, he says people, people don't understand it outside of Baltimore. Now, now in his movie Tin Men... Um, Danny DeVito did do a little Balmerese. He had a little ew in what he was doing. And if you go back to watch Tin Men, you'll hear Danny DeVito mm-hmm. using that ew kind of sound throughout. Um, but um, back in those days, in the, late, in the early 80s, I decided part of the fun would be to have the Baltimore character have the accent. And there were some radio stations, when it first came out, that didn't play it because they were afraid that they would offend their Baltimore listeners. When it turns out, those, those listeners loved the Baltimore accent. They knew of it. They might have even had a little bit of it, or their parents had it. And, and it sort of endeared the song to them. Yeah, I think that. And, and you know, Brandon Walker went through the same thing with, um, with Chinese Food for Christmas. You know, there, there were certain elements of that song which, you know, are... are I would say almost like cliche rather than stereotypical, and 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 so and so when he recorded when he shot the video, you know there were certain visual gags that he did that he got some pushback on, um, because people thought that there was like, oh this is a stereotype and right. you're making Jewish people look bad and, and, and that kind of thing, but overall the response was positive i think it was a little bit of like i can beat up my brother but you can't sort right, of attitude. right and i th- and i think because i am a homegrown baltimorean i think that's how people approach it and with any luck they understand that i'm doing it with love mm. you know because i i had a baltimore accent when i started doing play well for forever but didn't realize i had it until my drama teachers in high school started saying david it's man not man and you don't wash your clothes in the zinc. <laughs> <laughs> so did it take a long time to, to work that out? Or well, did take yeah, to it and, pretty and, easily? And they began, in high school, they started drawing my attention to it. And I started to hear it more. And I couldn't perform the Baltimore accent until I lost it, you know. Well, uh, that's interesting. Because your ears, and even, even today, there'll be some words that'll catch me. For instance, the word L-E-N-G-T-H. Length. Except in Balmer, it's length. Yeah. <laughs> and I said length for a long, long time until I was doing a narration. Somebody said, what, what, what did you just say? <laughs> it's length. I said, of course it is. <laughs> you know? So, um, so let's, let's go back. Crabs for Christmas. So what's this, what's, what was the genesis of that? Well, in the, in the 70s, when I started professionally in the business, I started as a stage actor moved into the electronic media. I was doing theater at night, and during the day I was usually either auditioning for or working on radio commercials, TV commercials, uh, training videos, 
uh, narration, that kind of stuff. And every now and then, people would hire me to sing jingles. But they never hired me. They knew me as an actor. Mm -hmm. They didn't hire me to sing beautiful songs. I'm not a beautiful singer, you know. You know, they never hired me to do, to sing a beautiful, you know, Ocean City, Maryland song for, you know. (laughs) They usually hired me to do characters. So I either sang as a, as a, oh, I don't know, a cow on a milk commercial or, uh, you know, maybe an elf during a Christmas commercial or Santa Claus or something like that. But I really enjoyed singing. Um, And I started to think to myself in the late 70s, could I create a song that would play on the radio? Could I go into a studio and record it and play, have it played on the radio? And I always knew I was never going to record, you know, or create another White Christmas or, you know, I'll Be Home for Christmas or any beautiful Christmas song because I just don't have the voice to do that. But when I heard in the late 70s, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, I heard that and it was funny and it sounded like it was recorded in the basement by a bunch of drunks. Yeah, and that, that's kind of interesting because you mentioned that in your book. And it has me thinking, you heard the original version because it got re-recorded later on. No, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. when it first came out, he was singing so deadpan. And that was the thing that made it funny to me. Walking home from our house Christmas Eve. You can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe That that was on a label called Oink. There was another label involved there, too. Yeah. But but, but that was, I think, the one where it really started to take off. Uh Uh-huh. And then, basically, the label just couldn't keep up, so they sold it to Columbia Records. And Columbia had him re-record the song. You're and now, kidding. if you listen to it on the radio these days, you're getting the Columbia version, usually. And it feels like they don't trust you to get the jokes because he keeps punching the wacky lines. You know, so it used yeah. to be like, you can say there's no such thing as Santa. Or it's almost the same note all the way across. Right. And now it's like, you can say there's no <laughs> such thing. So they must have brought in a new producer then, too. I suppose so. To make them do... that's I, I, Now you're making me want to go back and listen to them back to back. Oh, am I going to have to send you a recording? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. I do have the original 45. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. So the intent, I guess, from the beginning was to create a Christmas record then. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I... I you know, I started uh, professionally in the business as a stage actor. So I wrote plays... Uh, I have a number of them that are published, and they've been produced around the country. Um, and I, I was my first play that I submitted to a local theater. I was still in college, mm-hmm. and so I wrote what I knew about, which was like a, a. It had about eighteen college students who were, you know, it was funny, but it was all very young and about young people. And I handed it to a couple of dinner theaters in the area, and they went, "Well, I." Could, First of all, there's 18 people here. I can't produce. And it's all young people. And, you know, I got middle-aged and older folks coming to the dinner theater. They want to get away from teenagers, okay? <laughs> We're not going to put a play about teen. So I found out what the market was for plays. And it was small character, three-act comedies. So while I was doing small character, three-act comedies, I was learning how it worked. And also as an actor in rehearsals, I was learning what didn't work. So I started to write plays for dinner theaters, 
that were comedy with a little heart to it, uh, and it was easily produced. So I've never been somebody to just write something that, uh, you know, only appealed to me and wouldn't apply to, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't gain a large audience. I've always wanted to have work that was appreciated by a lot of people. Um, so when Crabs for Christmas, the idea for that came along, the idea is, well, people buy songs at Christmas, and so maybe a Christmas record would be the best way to do because hopefully it, it would catch on. And then the second part of the equation was, well, maybe if I wrote a Christmas song about Maryland, I can get local people to buy it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more local than crabs. Yeah. So I actually had the title before I even started to write the song. So that was the genesis of it. Okay. And, and what, what's your style when it comes to, to music? Are you, do you do melody or do you do lyrics first? You know... <laughs> or do they kind of evolve together? You know, there, there's a, there, um, a famous uh, songwriter, Sammy Kahn, okay. who wrote, you know, Love is Wonderful the Second Time Around, Three Coins in the Fountain. He, had a, he wrote a book, and he also had a show on Broadway, which I got to see, called Words and Music. And he talks about that. Well, he's dead now, but back then he talked about it. And, and people said, people always ask me, what comes first, the words or the music? And I always say... The phone call, which meant when somebody <laughs> called him and said, you got to write a song, that's what comes first. And whatever <laughs> happens after that, it doesn't really matter. Um, a lot of times it happens simultaneously for me. Uh, you know, I start with the idea, and hopefully the idea is funny and also is capable of bringing some heart to it as well. And then I start with the first, what's the story that I want to tell? And the first couple of lines and the melody sometimes sort of appear together in my head. And sometimes I sort of have to, to force it. There's a song that I do called um, uh, Christmas on the Stoop. And it's a, it's a 50s sort of sound. That kind of thing. So that sound, that feel came to me first that I wanted to do, have that kind of fun with a doo-wop kind of sound to it. So the feel and the sound of that came first, and then you sort of have to figure out how that works with Christmas on the stoop, dip, 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 crab dip, you know. <laughs> so um, there's no, each song is different. Each song evolves in a different way, has a different birthright to it. And as a writer, you're just following where the, the thoughts take you. At the same time, like you, you went in, you got the thing recorded, and you tell the whole story in, in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave Baltimore crabs for Christmas. <laughs> right. And I love the way it's arranged on the cover. So like, <laughs> we're, we're punching the joke a little bit, which is not bad in this case. I had a producer come in and punch up all the jokes. It's okay. <laughs> um, so you, you, you tell the story about how, how the whole thing got assembled. And at the same time, there was a little bit of, I don't know, confidence born of ego maybe that allowed you to press like a pretty big number of records in the first place that you thought yeah this thing's gonna sell yeah i don't know what i was thinking uh to tell you the truth (laughs) um uh, first of all i was immensely fortunate that kind of thing doesn't happen where on your first time out of the ballpark you you think you know i can do this and then it actually happens and it's actually accepted uh 
and that was proven after the, the set by the second song that I wrote, which nobody knows, although you can get it online and it's on the albums. A song I wrote, I, I figured, well, let's write a summertime song. I understand, I know how to do this songwriting. I know how to sell songs now. I'll write something and people will love it and we'll sell thousands of, that's when the cockiness came up. Uh-huh. And I figured I knew it all. Uh, and it's funny because I read an interview with M. Night Shyamalan, you know, uh, uh, Go, uh, what was the, the, the Sixth Sense director? Yeah, Sixth Sense. And Sixth Sense was his first feature film, and it was a huge hit. And he was interviewed not after that, not long after that, and he said, Oh, I got this. I figured it out. Not a problem. And the second movie, which I don't remember what it was, was a terrible bust. It didn't, didn't sell at all. So my second song, I thought, Well, I'll write a song about the ocean, and I'll do it, make it sound like a Beach Boys song. How could that not hit? Let me tell you how that could not hit. <laughs> I got a handwritten list of ways that didn't hit. So it was called Down the Ocean. And as I tell people, Down the Ocean went down the toilet. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not a bad record oh, as no, such. Oh, it's, it's okay. Know, it's, it's a fun little yeah, tune. Yeah. And, and, and it's a pleasant again, little ditty. And again, it leans into some of the tropes of going to visit Ocean City in, right. in Maryland. And, and um, yeah, and I guess it, you just... You just, you just never know, I guess, what people are going to choose to care about. No, you really don't. You really don't. Um, it's, it's funny. I, I've, I've had a couple of plays uh, published and produced, and there have, been a play, there have been plays that weren't received well critically and, 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 and didn't have a great audience, didn't have a great following. And yet I've had a couple of people in my lifetime come up and say, I love that play. That was it. It, you, you just can't tell what's going to hit people, you know? Now, I, I, thinking about that with, with the plays, when you if, you, if you put something together and it doesn't do very well, all right, but you think, like, there's a certain element here that I really like and I, this needs to get out to a bigger, mm-hmm. do, you, do you have any habit of recycling materials that if, well, for a more popular kind of? It's tough. Um, it's hard enough getting a play produced the first time. It is even harder to get it produced the second time because theaters understand that there's a cachet in a world premiere. And so I've had five or six plays, a couple of other musicals and musical reviews produced over the years. I have three of them that are published, so they're, they're produced around the country every now and then. And I was talking to... Uh, a, a dramatic uh, a drama, a dramatist at a, at a local theater, actually down in Bethesda. And I said to him, you know, I've got all these plays. They've been produced. Some of them are published. I'd love to get them into your theater. And he said, David, we, we're not going to do a show that's already been produced somewhere else. Hmm. And I'm like, well, how do people get a play produced a second time? <laughs> and it's tough. It's tough. So, so once something hits the stage... And if it doesn't do well, you sort of go, well, we gave it our best shot. It's hard enough to get a play produced a second time. If it didn't do well the first time, maybe it's best to say goodbye to it. Okay. Um, now, I, I, I told you when I first introduced myself to you that I had moved to Baltimore in 2001. Mm-hmm. And it was the fall of 2001. So it was late in the year. And so I was still getting acclimated to the city and learning what it was about and discovering. Like, here, now, here's the thing. Like, when you live in New York and your family is in Florida, 
okay? Mm. And I like to road trip. I don't fly. I, I do fly, but I just don't like it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would drive to visit my I've family. I've made that drive many, many times. Many, many times. And the thing <laughs> about Baltimore specifically as you're passing through is that you're on I-95. You're 30, 40 feet in the air because it's all overpass, right? Very little of it yeah. is ground level. Yeah. And you're passing through like the 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 docks you're passing through industrial areas mm-hmm. and you're looking down and you're going oh my god what a slum <laughs> and then i moved here friend persuaded me to move down here yeah. change a job that kind yeah. of thing change a life and i discovered this is a cool little city it's oh a, yeah it's a weird little city it's and it's not even so much of a city as it is like a bunch of small towns looking for a city. Yeah. I mean, there was a slogan one time for Baltimore, which they called it the city of neighborhoods, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is a pretty accurate description. Yeah. And it's not even like, like if you're walking through Manhattan, and Manhattan's a very walkable city, uh, and, and you will you know, kind of be walking along and doing your thing, and then you suddenly look up and realize, oh, now I'm in Chelsea. Oh, now I'm in Hell's Kitchen. Now I'm in Midtown, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Baltimore, it feels like you cross lines somehow, yep. and it's like suddenly the neighborhood just changes on yep. you. Yep. And, and that is always, and it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's mm-hmm. just what it is. And, and I just, I find that fascinating is like, you know, when you're in, say, Bolton Hill, you know, when you're in Pigtown, right, like, you right. know, when you're in Moral Park, like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I just find that amazing. Well, the other thing is when you're riding the train through this part of the area yeah you know historically train tracks have been placed in the cheapest property that they could buy and a lot of times having the train going through there didn't help property prices and values of home values so a lot of times where the train tracks go ain't the best neighborhoods either and uh so when you drive a train ride a train through baltimore a lot of times you're you're looking at places that aren't all that great and it and it but you know also I drive to DC a lot for work and there are places where you're driving to get you know to the center of the city or the tourist areas and you just you go through and you say wait wait a minute I'm a stone's throw from the capital wait a minute how's that work you know yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's kind of crazy that way um You've done a bunch of TV. Mm-hmm. There, there are definitely roles where people should recognize you. Um, you've been only on... if they didn't blink while I was on. <laughs> well, I mean, like a, you, you, but you did a couple of episodes of The Wire. Say I did. Okay, I which did. is a Baltimore-centric yeah, yeah. TV show. But uh-huh. um, um, you've been on Veep. I know that was originally a non-speaking role, and I think it. I, I don't. I, I didn't watch that show, uh-huh. uh, and, and so uh, all I know about it is what you wrote in the book. And, right. And you, you wrote in the book that, that it was at least written as a non-speaking role because mm-hmm. you, were, you were basically a visual gag. Correct. That the, was my impression. End, end of, yeah. yeah, that was like you were the button at the end of the show. Right, right. And, but you also said something about how basically they do it according to the script, and then they kind of play with it, like they do another take. Right. And so... You were encouraged, actually, to come up with lines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Armando, uh, I've forgotten his last name. Isn't that terrible? i got to do my homework when I read the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, the director, who uh, was also a, lot of, a writer, the, the, the feeling on the set was very open and free and friendly. They had this wonderful set uh, in a warehouse in Columbia, 
I was on the very first episode. And the set uh, was built in this warehouse, and you could literally walk in the front entrance of the vice presidential residence, and you could walk through the hallway. You could see people coming out of the elevator. You would walk into the press room, walk through the press room, walk into the outer office of the vice president, walk into the inner office of the vice president. You could probably even walk into our bathroom, too, if you wanted to. And it was all lit, and there were no lights that you could see. It was all lit in such a way to look sort of like an office, mm-hmm. so they never had to change lighting. So, and, and a lot of, they did the same thing on the wire. The, the basement of office on, on uh, the wire was, uh, it was, it was a big, big room with no light stanchions. And in both cases, all you saw that let you know that you were shooting a, a film or a TV show was you saw two cameramen and two guys with boom microphones. So you were getting two shots every time that you did a scene and you had the microphones making sure they got everybody there. So uh, when I got there, like I said, I got the script and my character just entered at the end of the scene where Julia Louis-Dreyfus's vice president said something like, I'm not going to hang around with this Elmer Fudd guy. And I walk in, and I'm the Elmer Fudd guy. And I, that's what led me to believe, okay, it's just a button. You look at me, and you know, wah, 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 you know, yeah. and then it's over. And the director said, oh, no, 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 no. When, when you just, you ad-lib. Just keep the scene going. And he said that to me about an hour before we shot my scene. And so I had the opportunity of watching how they work. And knowing what, what my scene was going to be, I started to plan, and I had, a, had the script, even though I didn't have any lines on it, I started to write out different lines I could say, different ways I could approach the character. Was I mad at her because she was disparaging me? You know, was I still being respectful of the vice president? Was I happy to see her because I don't get into the vice president's office very often? I wrote a different bunch of lines for each case. And watching them perform like that, they would do it as the script wrote, and then they would all sort of gather around and say, well, what about if you do? How about if I go? How about, why don't you go over there? And then they would just sort of ad-lib around it. And because you're shooting two cameras and you can edit quickly between them, they, they had like four or five different versions of each scene that they shot. So when I showed up in the scene, uh, they greeted me and I gave one of you know, the lines that I had written in my head. And then they did another thing. The director came up. Why don't we try to, let's try to, you know. So I gave them three or four different versions oh, okay. of the scene itself. Now, I'm only on camera for, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute. But the fact of the matter is, is that I gave them four or five different performances. And on one of them, when uh, Miss Dreyfus and I walked into her office and closed the door behind us, she sort of turned around and leaked, winked at me with a smile. And I'm like, well, that's like an Academy Award. I'll take that every day of the week. <laughs> yeah, validation, right? So which, what did they use? Uh, they used uh, sort of a... Uh, I wrote a line. Um, I was uh, the head of the Plastics Association. And the theme of the show was they were trying to get rid of plastic utensils because it was non-ecological. So they were promoting soy utensils, which unfortunately, when they put them into hot coffee, would melt. So it wasn't working. And so when I came in, there was another part of the show that had something to do 
with American flags, like she didn't have enough American flags. So as soon as she took me into her office, she'd say, you see our beautiful American flag that I got? And I said, well, I hope that's one of our plastic flags. <laughs> and, you know, she laughed at it, as her character would. Um, and uh, and that's, that's the take that they took. Mm. All right. Let's, uh, let's come back to Crabs for Christmas for a minute. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the record starts to sell, and you tell a story of meeting somebody in the middle of the night. Right to deliver to deliver records. Oh right! They just they've run out. They're freaking out, and they are clear across town. And, yeah, you know you have to figure out like some middle ground where it is. And it, what's kind of interesting is the story that you tell is that she says, "I haven't had a reaction to this since Dominic the Donkey." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now let me tell you something. Crabs for Christmas being a very regional hit. Okay, it's. Frankly, not a song that I had heard of before moving down sure. here. Why would you? Even though in where I was living in the New York metro area, mm-hmm. they they kind of dig the 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 novelty Christmas records. Uh-huh. Okay, Dominic is still huge in New York. So you're listening to the Christmas stations right. in New York. You're going to hear Dominic. Well, a you also of have times a large a Italian population there too. Yes, but here's the but here's the funny thing is yeah. like. I have never heard Dominic the Donkey down here in Baltimore. Oh, oh, we hear it all the time. I, I, yeah, I must be just hitting the wrong. Yeah, stations. you're just hitting the wrong spot. Yeah, I hear it on the Christmas stations. I hear it at Christmas parties. I hear people getting requests for it. It's it's alive and well in Baltimore. Trust me. And it, and I'm thrilled to be in the same same category of <laughs> to put both our names in in the same sentence. I'm just thrilled to death. Yeah. Um, but but this also like so this actually brings me back around to my story from moving down. Yeah. Okay. So a friend of mine was helping me get acclimated to the city, and she said, you know, we were talking about crabs in general, you know, and you know how the season works and that kind of thing. And then she asked me, "Have you ever heard this record?" I was like, "No." She's like, "Oh, I'm going to have to get you a copy." And as it happened, you had just released the Twenty Years Later CD. Oh, okay, 2011. Okay. 2001. Oh, the, oh, oh, the 20, 20, yeah, that's right, yeah, 2001. 2001. Yeah. And so she bought me a copy of that, yeah. and I got to listen to it. So what I didn't realize until a little while after that, though, was even though you had all these different songs, including Down the Ocean, Down the Ocean, <laughs> yeah. okay, which was an immediate follow-up to Crabs for Christmas. Correct. This was basically the first time you had an album. This was the first album. Correct. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was on a television show, morning television show in 2010, um, with uh, on on WJZ TV here locally, and one of the morning hosts, Marty Bass. During the interview, he, he he would always call me and have me come on around Christmas, and we would play around, and I would sing it and stuff. And he said. Um, he said, you know, next year is the 20th anniversary of the song. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, it would be, yeah. And he said, well, you're going you're gonna to come out with an anniversary album, aren't you? And I went, sure. <laughs> I'm working on it right now. <laughs> and then, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I said to my wife, um, you know, I'm thinking about doing a Crabs for Christmas album. You know, it'll take me about a year to put together, and I'll, I should be able to have it out by Christmas. And my ever-supporting wife looked at me and said, who would buy an album about crabs for Christmas? <laughs> and I said, well, I would put other songs on it. I wouldn't just put 13 tracks of crabs for Christmas on it, you know. And so that was a long process. 
and uh, I did use like Down the Ocean and, uh, and wrote a bunch of other songs as well about it. So that was a real learning experience. And it, it really did take, you know, eight months to put it all together and then to, to get it all ready with the artwork and all the duplication stuff. That, that was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And then you did you did release another update thirty years later. Yeah, yeah we recorded uh, live at two locations at a Baltimore Country Club and at Germano's Restaurant downtown Little Italy. And so we recorded. Uh, there's a bunch of numbers on there that are that are live. There's a few that are um, uh, re- that don't weren't recorded in front of a live audience. One particular called Hey Hun. Between the first album and the second album. I had gotten very close to a group of women in town who are the Huns, the Hun yeah, High. That's, that's going to need explaining. <laughs> it is. Uh, in Baltimore, there is, we, we celebrate Huns, and that happens at Hun Fest, which has been going on for, golly, 30 years, something like that. And a, a Hun in Baltimore is a usually a blue-collar a working woman who, uh, you know, they, they started to work when their husbands went off to World War II or in the Korean War. And in those days, you know, wor- working women were sort of frowned upon, especially by men, because they thought, well, if a woman's working, the husband really must not be doing his job. And my own, in my own house, my dad, who, worked for, who was in World War II, worked, at the B&O, worked for the B&O Railroad. He was a land agent. He bought and sold the land that the tracks went on. When I was in high school, my mother wanted to go back to school and learn how to become a nurse. And my dad was totally against it. Not because he didn't think she could do it, but because he knew she could. And, she, and he also was afraid that people would think my, he was not a good breadwinner. So there was a whole bunch of women, and my de- my mom did go back to school, became a nurse, worked uh, in hospitals, and also eventually worked for so for uh, uh, the Social Security Administration in Woodlawn. And these Huns, historically, in the 40s and 50s, some and even into the 60s, wore their hair in beehives, put their hair up high on their head, as the saying goes, the closer. You know, the higher the hair, the closer to God. And and yeah, and, and so just you think about like the the hair hairstyles on the women in the B fifty twos. Well, like that, that's, that's and also think about John Waters' movie Hairspray. Sure. You know, uh, you know he basically basically showed the world what that was all about. And so we celebrate the wonderful women, normally working class, who went to work, helped support their family. And the reason they were called Huns is because when people walked in to their beauty parlor or their restaurant or their dentist's office or whatever, the person, the, the woman would say, hi, Hun, what do you need? And Hun is short for honey. So they would be called Huns. And Denise Whiting, who had a, uh, the Cafe Hun in Hamden for years and years and years, started the Hun Fest to basically celebrate women like her mom, who lived in that era who were very strong, wonderful women and celebrated their strength and their tenacity in this world. Yeah, and it's worth noting, like Hunfest is one of these situations where a lot of people will actually 
dress up like as a hon. Correct. And so that there is a certain outfit involved. Yep. And, and you have to dress a certain way, and it usually involves like animal prints and like it that does. Sort of thing. And, and actually, and, it had, and, and the um, the cat's oh, the, eye glasses. The cat's eye glasses. And when you go to Hun Fest, they have a tent set up where you can come in and get your hair done up like a beehive hairdo. Sweet. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, so I got to know the Huns very well. They started to ask me to perform at Hun Fest and eventually uh, got to know two wonderful Huns, Wendy Savelle and Karen Fights, and they become, became my singers. I don't call them backup singers because they were both amazing performers in their own right. So they appeared on stage with me. And that's when I wrote a song called Hey Hun, which was about those women, the struggles they went through, the strength they had, and how they sort of were all over Baltimore. You had um, actually turned down a role in a John Waters movie. I and, did. And, and, <laughs> but, but, the, but the role eventually went to a cousin of yours, was it not? A brother. A brother, okay. Yes. Uh, I tell the story in the book about being, I was in an airport in Seattle. Uh, I do a lot of work on live events, corporate events, and I had produced one out there. And I was in the airport in Seattle, and my phone rang, and it was a casting agent uh, who worked with Pat Moran, who in many ways produces a lot of John's work, but also casts all the roles. He also casts the roles in The Wire and Homicide and uh, you know, she's just ubiquitous here in, in, in this part of the country. She's won a major awards for casting. And I got a call from John Strawbridge, was, who were his, her casting associate. And uh, he said, David, um, John's got a new movie out, and uh, we'd like you to come in and audition. I said, great, great. I'll be back in town tonight. I can be there anytime tomorrow. He said, okay, that's good. He said, um, let me ask you something. Uh, would you have any trouble being naked in a movie? And I said, so, John, when you say naked, are you talking about, like, Austin Powers where I'm standing behind a loaf of French bread? Or he said, no, David, we're talking soup to nuts. <laughs> and I said, expression. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was genius, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Let me talk to my wife. So, and literally, I'm moving toward the they're starting to open the gate i'm starting people are starting to get on the plane so i call my wife and i say honey um i i, I might have a chance to be in a john waters movie but they want to know if i would have any trouble being naked and she said you mean like really naked or you i said yeah they it might be like really naked and she said well she said I, you know if if you think it would be good for your career that's and she's always been joellen's always been very supportive of me Except when she didn't think anybody would buy a Crabs for Christmas album. <laughs> Outside of that, she was also a little dubious about the book, but that's a whole other story. Um, so uh, I said, okay, all right, well, then I'll, I'll tell them I'll go into audition. So I hung up with her. Then the phone rings back immediately, and it's our daughter who was like 16 at the time. She said, Mom says you're going to be in, naked in a movie. I said, no, honey, I'm just auditioning, and if they cast it, I, I might... She said, are you, are you going to make love to somebody? And I said, no, honey, I'm not. It's not. No, I'm just. They just maybe want me to be. And all of a sudden, I hear the phone being grabbed by another kid. So now our oldest son, Blake, he was about 10 at the time. And he said, you're going to be naked in a what? I said, I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to be naked. And I'm standing in the airport in line talking to people. 
And, and he says, well, you, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not going to watch it. I said, okay, all right, I got that. <laughs> then I hear the phone being grabbed by his little brother, Brett. And his little brother says, you're going to be naked in a movie? I said, Brett, I'm just auditioning for the role. And he said, don't do it. I said, you, you wouldn't want me to do it? He said, no, you can't be naked in a movie. And I said, well, okay, if it would upset you that much, I won't do it. And he says, would you make a lot of money? I said, well, it's like a three-month shoot. Yeah, that, that would be like a lot of money. He said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I went to the audition, and, and you didn't, in, the, you, you, you did, in those days, you did not get the script until you walked in the door because they were keeping very close tabs mm-hmm. on where all the scripts went. Now they email it to you. It's got a watermark with your name on it just for safety's sake. But I went, and for the first time, I started reading the scene that I would be in, and my stomach started to hurt. And, and I knew why my stomach was hurting, because I'm imagining that I'm going to have to be naked in this movie. So literally, I get up to the door. They call me in. Pat Moran is there. It's a lovely, wonderful woman, and uh, red hair, a voice that could cut through glass. <laughs> and, and I said, Pat, I, I have to apologize to you. I just, I don't think I can do this. And she said, oh, okay, I understand. She said, um, well, let me ask you something. You think your brother would do it? Because he's about two years younger than I am. And I said, yeah, I mean, Paul's single. He doesn't have any kids. He doesn't have a wife. He's much better looking than I am. I said, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, would, I think you should audition him, absolutely. And it ended up he got that. And I got the role of a doctor, uh, right, you were in it anyway. Yeah, so I was in it anyway. So they cast me in another role, and I kept my clothes on. And we, we have not, as yet, mentioned the, the name of this film. Oh, it's called A Dirty Shame. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it did not do well because it was rated X. And in yeah. those days, when it came out, you could not put an X-rated movie in, in the malls, in the theaters, you know, the multiplexes. They wouldn't take it. You could not advertise an X-rated movie in the newspapers. So the movie did not do well, but it's a very funny movie that you can still rent and you won't see me naked. <laughs> yeah, it is, I, that, now that one I have seen, it is a, it is a funny film. It is it, a funny. It, it really is. It is definitely not for the faint of heart. No, it's not. <laughs> um, because it does get into a lot of um, like, like just sexual kinks. Well, and, and you know, I have a theory about that. And I've never spoken to John about this. I've been in two movies of John's. Uh, um, Dirty Shame and, uh, uh, oh, what's the one with Johnny Depp? Um, Crybaby? Crybaby. Yeah, I have a little role in Crybaby. And I've never spoken to him about this. But here's my theory. At, you know, Hairspray was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it went on Broadway, and it was an even bigger hit. So peop- John started to be known as this nice man who made this wonderful 1950s Broadway musical, Hairspray. <laughs> and about that time, he started planning for A Dirty Shame. And I think, although there's, I have nothing to base it on but my own thoughts... I think John got tired of being known as that nice man who made Hairspray. I think he wanted to go back to his roots of Pink Flamingos and, mm-hmm. and uh, all of those edgy avant-garde films where people were eating dog poo 
right. and they had smell-o-vision. And, you know, the one movie, you scratched a, a sniff and smell, and there were terrible smells on the car. <laughs> and I think that's what he likes to do. So he likes being edgy. He likes being, you know, controversial. And I think he did an X-rated movie because he didn't want to be known as the guy, nice guy from Hairspray anymore. But that's just, that's just my own assumption. Oh, that's reasonable, though. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> All right. Um, so tell me, do you have any, um, any, any, any pet charities or, or causes? I do. That- um, uh, there's there's a, a wonderful school called the Community School. Mm-hmm. That's uh, in, in downtown Baltimore, run by a wonderful guy named Tom Collada. And it is a school for kids who wouldn't get the great, who needed a little extra help. And, it's, and I've, I've spoken to the students there. It's a very small school. I've, t- I've spoken to the students there on a number of times. He usually invites me in once a year or so just to give them my experience. And he always has speakers come in. You know, it's, it's a very small school. It's very personalized attention. And the kids benefit greatly from it. And it's just a wonderful charity. It's called the Community School. And if you Google it, you know, especially putting in Baltimore and Tom Collada, C-U-L-L-O-T-A, it'll come up. And, and it's, uh, I highly uh, recommend uh, making a donation to it. All right, cool. Um, so, so what's next for the crabs? Because you, you, do, you do do these anniversary. You do mark these, these decades. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I make a new album every 20 years, and whether I need to or not. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm planning a second book, uh, and I'm writing new songs, and uh, I'm even now beginning to investigate where we're going to perform next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to make uh, music videos uh, about some things that we haven't before. So I'll, I'll be around to annoy you for a while with any luck. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, where can people find you on the web? Well, they can find the book and, and uh, CDs and T-shirts at crabsforchristmas.com. Um, if they want, want to learn a little about me, I have daviddeboy.com, although the, the website needs to be updated, really does, really needs to be updated. So you're going to see a younger version of David Deboy <laughs> at daviddeboy.com. But crabsforchristmas.com is a great place to, uh, to get the book and other items and to find out what we're up to. Fantastic. How you feel? You good? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was fun. All right, cool. Thank you very much. Thank well, you. thank you. Great talking to you. In a department store north of Houston sat a Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. In a minute, he knows the front door will close and this tired old Santa can pack up and leave. But a big fella came out of nowhere and he sat right down on Santa's knee. Well, the whole place stopped dead as the big fella said, Dear Santa, I'd appreciate you listening to me. And he said, Oh, I want crabs for Christmas. Oh, only crabs will do. Oh, oh, with crabs for Christmas, my Christmas wish will come true. Santa, he started perspiring, 
And he looked like he might be in pain And his face got all stiff As he asked the man if He would take just a moment And kindly explain Well, the man said, you know I'm from Maryland And them crabs is what I'm itching for Don't you know, Santa dear With steamed crabs and a beer It would be like a trip back to old Baltimore Baltimore Oh, I want crabs for Christmas Oh, only crabs will do Oh, with crabs for Christmas My Christmas wish will come true Round the corner came two big policemen And they saw that man on Santa's lap Well, they reached for his throat and his bowlingly coat And they picked him up, losing his Oriole cap Santa cried, put him down right this instant Now, my boy, what you want's not so odd But there's no crabs till May, so we'll hop on my sleigh And we'll fly to New England and I'll get you scrawled My Christmas wish will come true. How about that? David DeBoy, he was just delightful to talk to. His book, I Gave Baltimore Crabs for Christmas, and his other merchandise is available through his website, daviddeboy.com. The book is a fun, fast read, and if you're aspiring to get into the voice acting business, there are a lot of little tips in there if you're paying attention. And that, my friend, is a full lid on this edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, hey, you made it this far, that's got to mean something. Please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating or better yet, a review somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash ow, how good it is. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website howgooditis.com where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is.